Yes. The uh, the white sister went so well through the world. Uh, I was in England not too long ago, and a man came up and said, I want to thank you, Miss Gish, for a year's work you gave me one time. And I said, oh, how was that? And he said, I sang in one of your films in Glasgow, Scotland. And I said, you mean you sang in a film that came back and forth during a year? He said, no, one of your films ran consecutively in Glasgow for a year. And I said, what was that? And he said, the white sister. So you see, there was money to be made in religion, as they later found out. Uh -huh. I started two trends in films, religion. And in the late 30s, I went to Hollywood with a story I'd written called Silver Glory. It was the story of Griffith, the father of the films. And I took it to the studios. They were interested, but they said, no film about a living man has ever been done. How can you do this? And I said, well, here is the way to begin, is to tell the story of the history of your business while the man who created it is still alive. And he wouldn't be playing in it, of course, and he, all he did was to approve of uh, what I'd written. And they were interested. Jesse Lasky wanted to do it. But he was in partnership with Mary Pickford, and Mary did not want to do it. So he couldn't. And he told me he was awfully sorry that he didn't think the fact that it was of a living man was against it. He thought that might help. And to prove it, a few years later, when their partnership was dissolved, the first picture he made was Sergeant York, which was the first biography of a living man ever yeah. made in films. So I think I started two trends, religion and li living biography. I wanted to do this as a series of great Americans. I wanted to start with Griffith and go to Edison and go to Ford, Rockefeller, and back through our, through our nation to all the great people. Carnegie, you, we wouldn't have libraries as we have today without the imagination of a man called Carnegie. And tell all the stories of uh, the great men uh, of our nation, which are Cinderella. You know, fairy tales are so wonderful. But um, I didn't get, I didn't accomplish it. Maybe someday someone will carry on. You know, the story of America is yet to be told in films. Oh, I certainly hope they will one of these days. You were telling us something about the costumes for La Boheme. Oh, yes, of course. I heard when I was in uh, at MGM that they had engaged a French artist called Erte, E-R-T-E. -E. He used to do the covers for Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and Vanity Fair, and he was a wonderful artist. I thought, isn't this great good luck that I should have a Frenchman come over here just as I'm about to do a French film and we'll do the costumes. And I went to him in great excitement, told him the story. And he went out and knowing Mimi in Bohème was a poor girl, he bought new calico. It cost five cents a yard, but he made it up in a dress and it looked like a very nice new dress. It didn't look like it was calico. And I tried to explain to him, you can't get poverty that way. You have to have old things, worn things, threadbare things. I said, old silk will look much poorer than this five cent calico. Well, it all, he didn't like to be told. So there was uh, quite an argument, whereupon I said I wouldn't wear his costumes. And I went up to the, a wardrobe lady called 
mother Colder. And I took some copies of paintings and a few ideas, and Mother Colder and I did my costumes for La Boheme. He dressed uh, uh, Rennie Adderay in his, and the, he ruined this lovely little figure. She could have been a little French print at all times, so adorable. And he covered her all up to such an extent that she, she just looked unreal and heavy and, yes, and no movement in it. And uh, Oh, he didn't like me. He, he gave some pretty uh, sad interviews about me, but yeah, that was mutual. I didn't like his ideas any better, and his clothes wouldn't move. And I knew what was necessary after all those years in films to give movement and to give mood and to tell the story. You didn't have words then. You, Everything you did and wore and were was too important to lose. Let's go back to Broken Blossoms, Miss Gish, if you don't mind. You were telling us about how uh, uh, schedules interfered, and uh, because of this, that you had to do some of your scenes during the day and some of the scenes at night. And I didn't want to do this film in the first place. It was from uh, Thomas Burke's Chink and the Child, and the child was 12 years old, and I was 18, I was tall, and I didn't want to play a 12-year-old child, didn't think I should or could. I said I would tutor any child they would get and uh, help, and, and that would be much better for the story. Well, the child could do everything but the hysterics at the end. You know, when a child is hysterical, it's like an animal. There's no restraint. They just let go like an animal, and you couldn't get a child to do this. So uh, they said, you'll have, to, you'll have to play this. Whether you want it or not, you'll just have to play this. So I said, all right, I won't do it if I can't have eight or nine hours sleep because he had a way of working you yes. 16 hours a day. And you had to, after it was over, go get your makeup off and get cleaned up and get home. And you ended with five hours sleep and you were tired. And he said, all right, I'll give you nine hours sleep. Well, he didn't because <laughs> Donald Crisp, <laughs> who played my father, was directing at the Paramount uh, studio all during the day. We could only take his scenes at night. So all day I worked with Richard Bartlemus doing those scenes, and all night I had to work with Donald Crisp, and that was the reason we made it so quickly, even with all those effects out of doors and fog. And in those days we didn't have trick things that made fog easily. We had to have pipes above, and we were out in the cold night, and I know I just finished having Spanish influenza, and Dorothy said if I died, she'd shoot Mr. Griffith. <laughs> <laughs> because we were out there all night. <laughs> but we made it, and I played it, and I guess I must have persuaded everyone that you I could be a did. child. Uh, why do you suppose Mr. Griffith gave that curious interview on the, the eve of the premiere, in which he said that uh, broken Blossoms had better be successful, otherwise he'd be dead broke. Because he had a contract with the Paramount Company to make six films, and at the delivery of each negative, he was to get $250,000. And when he brought uh, Broken Blossoms up, they said, well, you might as well put your hand in my pocket and steal $250,000 to bring me a picture like this. What do you think I'm going to do with it? It's not going to make a cent. Well, it hurt Mr. Griffith's feelings very much, although even Mr. Griffith hadn't been able to look at it. He wouldn't cut it. He said every time he did it, it depressed him so. He tried to get me to cut it, and I did what I could, but uh, Jimmy Smith, the cutter, said, well, I don't know what's the matter with the old man. He won't look at this picture. So he finally got it put together and brought it east, and 
when he, it met with this reception from the head of uh, Paramount, he went out and he had no money. I don't know where he got $250,000. He must have mortgaged everything because if he gave that interview, it must have been true. Everything depended upon the success of this. Well, you know, in California in those days, it was full of orange trees. And at night, you'd walk along and orange blossoms scented that misty air. And he thought it would be a good idea to have the theater smell like orange blossoms. And he sent for crates and crates of orange blossoms. Of course, when they got here, they were all brown and dead and didn't have <laughs> one smell left. But he put it in the George M. Cohen Theater here. And I think Morris Guest handled it. And uh, the press were ecstatic. It was played at top prices. It was only an hour and a half, an hour and a quarter. And I think it played for $3.50 a ticket, which was unheard of for a film in those days. That was top price for a musical comedy in the theater. And it ran successfully for weeks and months there, I believe. It was a great success throughout the world, and the press said it ought to be the Bible for all future films. Anyone making them should have this at, its, at their elbow. You know, it was quite a sensation. Something curious happened at rehearsal with lights, didn't it, that gave Mr. Griffith an idea? Oh, at the, uh, when they were getting ready for the opening here, they were throwing lights on the stage because they had a, a dance or something, and some of the film happened to be on the screen at that time. And he said, wait, hold that. It was a gold light or a blue light. And it gave, uh, it tinted the film in the most poetic manner. And he used that for the first time uh, in the showing of Broken Blossoms. And I believe, I can't remember those reviews, but uh, I think they were quite ecstatic. Yes, they were. And tell us about uh, Mr. Griffith's finances and how he'd mortgage one picture to float another one, and how you were the lifeline that finally pulled everything out with Way Down East. Oh, I don't think I was that ever. But I was the only one, I believe, that thought enough of Mr. Griffith to say, no, that's not good. No, I don't like that. And, oh, it would make him very mad. He'd say, if you're so damn smart, get in there and make it right. <laughs> but I just say, uh, he didn't have time to see other pictures, and I did. Some I'd see it, and uh, I thought his Every scene in every picture he made had to be twice as good as in any other, and they were getting to be pretty good imitators in those days. The pictures were pretty fine, I thought, some of them, and I'd come back and say so. And I remember in Orphans in the Storm, we did a scene, and he could usually tell by the way I looked if I thought it was good, and he'd come over and say, well, what do you think? And I'd say, I think it's terrible. I don't think it belongs in this picture. And then he'd get mad and in front of everybody, which was not too nice but he'd say if you're so you know smart go ahead and do it your way and then you, you you didn't i don't believe in telling people that are directing certainly they can see and know better than you do but maybe you have an idea and if you show them it, it might be good it might be bad but at least show them so we did the scene as i thought perhaps it would be better than the pictures i'd seen downtown and in front of all the i think we had hundreds of people working that day he was so generous, he got down on his knees and took both my hands and kissed them and said, you're right. <laughs> oh, because he, he was never ashamed or too big mm -hmm. to say he was wrong. He didn't like to be crossed, who does? But he was a fair man and a wonderful man to work for and with. And I know when I left, I, oh, I felt very badly because I felt I was being put out. You see, we never had contracts with Mr. Griffith. He just said he'd give you so much money. and. 
and you got it, and sometimes you didn't get anything. When we were making Hearts of the World, we didn't get salary. When we were making The Birth of a Nation, we didn't get a salary. There was, there was no salary, there was no money to give, but we knew he didn't have it, that when he got it, we would be paid, and we were. And after uh, orphans, he said, I don't think you should stay here anymore. You know as much about making <laughs> pictures as I do. You go out and make your own. So I felt I was being put out and had to leave. Mr. Griffith told you that you'd spoiled orphans, didn't he? Yes, because I carried the first climax too high in acting. Ah. And uh, his running to the rescue with the horses for the guillotine at the end, he thought suffered because I had taken that climax too high. In, in which scene, Miss Gish? Where the uh, girl is up in the room and she hears her sister singing in the street. Oh, yes. Where she's telling the story of losing her sister. And then she thinks she hears her in the distance and then thinks it's an hallucination that she's heard her so often. Couldn't be true. And then finally, it dawning upon her that it is her sister. And then rushing to the balcony, seeing that it is. And then the sister being taken away. And she rushes to the door and the soldiers come in to arrest her and they can't get to one another, you see. It was a similar climax to the end where the horses were running to the rescue of the girl on the guillotine. Yes, it's a perfect scene, too. How did you react when you heard that Mr. Griffith had spent so much money for the way down east to secure the rights to film it? Well, all the young people in that film thought it was ridiculous because such a silly old-fashioned story, and what were we going to do to make people believe it? And we went up to Vermont on location because we had to have two rivers flowing side by side. Sometimes the ice in a river will go out in the nighttime, and we wanted to photograph it and have it go out in the day. So we went up there and found that the natives in Vermont, many of them had never heard of Charlie Chaplin. They could all tell you the story of Way Down East. <laughs> so it proved how much we knew and how much better he was. Is it true that uh, Clarine Seymour was originally scheduled to uh, play a role in Way Down East? She did play the second role in Way Down East. That is Clarine in the distance in all those ice and snow scenes. She died with four others from exposure mm. in Way Down East. So we got uh, little Mary Hay who was similar in build so that you wouldn't know the difference. There was a period just before Orphans, was there not, when Mr. Griffith was wondering whether to film Faust or Orphans of the Storm? Yes, we quarreled about that because I wanted Orphans of the Storm, knowing that Mr. Griffith had money, uh, had no money, and, and needed money, and that uh, uh, Orphans was more likely to be successful for him than uh, Faust, which in America had never made money. And uh, so I prevailed upon him to do orphans and he gave me five percent of orphans he wrote on it the only time we ever had anything written on a paper he wrote on the paper that I was to get five percent of the gross of orphans of the storm and he said you must put this in your safety deposit box now this is valuable well after that we separated and I went on and made the white sister he went on and made America and my picture was successful and his wasn't so I thought he needs money more than I do and I never presented this slip of paper thinking he would get it well of course he didn't get it you know, it was. It, I, that's how much I knew about business. I was it just held in trust for you? No, I never got it. I oh. didn't present it. They didn't oh. know it. Oh. I should have presented it to the business people. Since no it. claim was made, no payment nope. was made. But he didn't get it. It must have gone the way. Uh, heaven knows where. I don't know where Mr. Griffith's money went. He never used it. He never got it because as long as I ever knew him, he lived in two rooms. He had maybe 
Two or three suits of clothes, he had a car to ride in, and nothing more, never wanted anything more. His money, what he got, was put into the next film. He wanted money only to say something in this medium of celluloid that he had to say. And he was usually uh, mortgaging, well, we would make, say, Birth of a Nation. Then he'd mortgage that to make intolerance. And then he would lose, you see, what his interests in intolerance would be lost. Then he would, uh, well, he met, went to work for the French and British government, so of course he was taken care of there. Then he went to Paramount, and each film was to be delivered for this amount of money, and that assured him of making six films. And then after that, after Broken Blossoms, I think, I had forgotten what he did make, but it wasn't so successful. And then we made uh, Orphans of the Storm, and that again brought in some money. Then he made, I believe, Dream Street. That again didn't. Yes. And then we made, no, we made Way Down East first, then Dream Street, then Orphans of the Storm. You're right, that's right. And then I, I, I don't know after that, I wasn't there. There was a further project to film Faust with you, but without Mr. Griffith, wasn't there, Miss Gish? Yes, Murnau did it in Germany, and he asked me to do it. And when I went with MGM, they said I could. Well, I just worked with a man that when he said he'd do something, he did it. You didn't have to have it written. But I found out that it, with big companies, you must have it on paper or you don't do it. And they, they just said they couldn't afford to send me over and, and uh, have them keep me that long. I had to stay in Hollywood and make pictures there with Mr. Thalbert. Oh, it's certainly our loss. What happened to the plan for you to appear in Anna Karenina, Miss Gish? Well, Irving Thalberg wanted to change the story. He wanted the child not to be my child, but to be an adopted child. And, and I said, no, you can't do that. This is a classic. He said, well, but you can't have Ill illegitimate children. The public won't buy that. And I said, well, then I can't do classics. If I can't make it honestly, I can't make it dishonestly. I think that would ruin the story and make it seem ridiculous. So I think they uh, put it aside for the time being, or maybe right at that time, they started working on it for uh, Greta Garbo. And she, she made did. it in 1927. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it was around about that time. Yes. I think she was allowed to have an illegitimate baby. I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> there was some scheme at this time, wasn't there, Miss Gish, to increase the public interest in you in a way that you didn't much care for. When my contract was coming to an end at MGM, Irving Thalberg, whom I worked with and loved and admired, this, this was a great talent. This young, when we first went out there, all the people came down to the train to meet us, Mr. Mayor and Mr. King Vidor and Mother saw a young boy and she gave him our trunk checks to look after our trunks. And this was Irving Thalberg, the head, and it delighted him. He looked like pictures of the Christ child in the temple at 12. Looked so young. And he was a friend, and he came and he said, I want you to let us arrange a scandal for you. And I thought, well, hmm, that's new, having a scandal <laughs> arranged. But I knew he was my friend, so I said, well, Irving, let me think about it, please, for three days. And I went home, and my mother was ill. My sister was in London. I hadn't anyone to talk this over with. 
So I mulled it over in my New England brain and thought, my goodness, scandals arranged. He said, I said, why, Irving? Uh, would you want to arrange a scandal? And he said, well, I'll tell you. You're sitting way up there on a pedestal, and nobody cares. Let me knock you off, and everyone will care. So I thought, if I do this now, in another year or two, they'll come, and they'll want another scandal arranged. Do I want a life full of arranged scandals? And my New England blood wouldn't let me. So I went back and said, Irving, I know you mean well by me, and I wish I could say yes to this, but you know you are your ancestors, and there's something that won't let me do it. I can't. And I said, I'll go back to the theater where I came from if you have to do these things to sell pictures. But you know that press department used that method very successfully for years after that. I think now and again the press people uh, get on to it and they withdraw stories. But they arrange those scandals. And I think it's a pity because it ceases to be publicity and becomes a kind of cheap notoriety and it doesn't do a great and dignified business any good in the long run. You know, Griffith used to tell us when we were children, you want to be a star, you think putting your name up in electric lights makes you a star that has anything to do with it. You see hundreds of little girls and boys coming along every year with their name up. A star means that you work for at least 10 years. You have to be known in every family of the world, because then it was silent pictures, and you, to be known in every family of the world, you have to have good pictures for 10 years. You have to give the best performance in them, but you're no better than the, than the performance of the least actor. You have to be responsible for your stories. You have to be like Caesar's wife, above reproach in your private life. You can never be late. You have to be the first one here in the morning, the last one. Well, he painted such a picture that by the end of, the, of it, we didn't want to be one of those. We didn't want our name up in electric lights. In fact, we didn't even want our name mentioned. <laughs> it, it sounded such a cross to bear. But he believed that these films had been something the Bible had foreseen and predicted that they were the universal language that was to come into the world and bring about the millennium. That it was the thing that would make all men brothers because they would all understand one another and that wars were brought about through misunderstandings. And here we were taking the first baby steps in this great new almost sacred medium. That's why pictures in those old days had a kind of spirit. You speak of way down east and we were out on the ice in weather way below zero and we lost five lives. The second, the girl that was playing the part next to mine. That was because we weren't important. We didn't feel we were important. It was the picture that was important. It was the idea and we were allowed to be part of that idea. That's the spirit that's gone out of Hollywood. That's such a pity. Didn't Greta Garbo start at, at MGM at about the same time that you did in this case? Did yes. you see much of her? Yes, quite a bit. She couldn't speak English at the time, and Mr. Stiller, who came over with her, used to bring her over to the set when King Vidor was making La Boheme, and he'd 
sit her there in the morning and she couldn't speak to anyone. She'd watch, she'd come get her at lunch, take her to lunch, bring her back after lunch and sit her there. So I had a great sympathy for this poor lonely girl that couldn't speak to people because we couldn't speak Swedish. And I heard in a few weeks that she had lost her only sister and couldn't go back to Sweden. Well, that, having a sister of my own, I couldn't think of anything worse happening to anyone. And I sent her some roses. And when she came to thank me for them, she burst into tears. I burst into tears and kind of hung on to one another, made sign language. And I think, I hope we've been friends ever since. While we're considering the MGM period, let's see, we don't mention Annie Laurie and the enemy, do we? But no, we do talk about we the won't. wind. <laughs> we just won't. They were made when my mother was desperately ill, oh. and I had no other interest, really. I'm so really. If they were not good pictures, it was entirely my fault. I'm sorry that Annie Laurie wasn't uh, Lucia de Lammermoor, the bride of the Lammermoors. It seems to me that that's what it should have been instead of this. Can well, I think I lost interest in her when I found that she had turned into such a horrible old gossip in her old age. Oh. And I didn't see any reason to <laughs> be interested in her. The wind was quite a trial to make, wasn't it? Yes, we went up to Bakersfield, and we were in heat 120 in the shade. I remember opening a car door, starting to, and burning blisters on my hands. Mm. And they had eight airplane propellers uh, blowing the sand and smoke pots at me all the time because it was the wind. And I you would get burned, my hands would get burned, you know, and smoke pots, bits of the fire. Mm. And uh, as I look back, I think, what took care of me? Why didn't one blow in my eye or something? You know, I remember my hair turned into hay because mm. the sun and the wind and the heat out all day. And we had about 80 uh, cowboys with us. And their pet outdoor sport was taking these big Puritus water bottles and putting rattlesnakes in them. Mm. Because it was the rattlesnake season and they were, uh, they abound in that territory. And it was the first time I'd ever been able to look closely at a rattlesnake's eyes. You'd snap against the glass and he would put his fangs out and the most poisonous and venomous look out of eyes as an actress naturally I was awfully interested in wondering if I could get that look if needed for a certain scene at any time but I think that's the most vicious and poisonous look I've ever seen in a living eye and you know if a rattlesnake could bite you when he's not angry he wouldn't it wouldn't be poison they tell me that it's only that vicious temper that creates the poison which is a great lesson to us isn't it yes i meant to ask you earlier um when you were filming with mr griffith and before he took you into the the cutting room and let you in on the projection and so on and so forth do you ever recall a total picture striking you with with quite a new power and impact and surprising you as you saw it in its completed condition at a, a premiere or for the first time flashed onto the screen. I remember them driving me into the street, crying, walking the streets when the audience didn't react the way I thought they should. What film was this, do you remember? The White Sister. Oh. They laughed at 
spots and I walked the streets for hours they couldn't find me it hurts when it, we, it was too long we'd taken it out at 18 reels and it should have been 12 we cut it down and very often uh, we I quarreled with Mr. Griffith about the cutting of the picture one of our big fights was over the climax of orphans I thought it was too long those horses running he, and, and I still think I was right I think it's too long it should have been shortened a little Speaking of audience reaction, you were telling about two different showings of Mr. Griffith's war films, and audiences had reacted one way one time and one way another. Do you remember? Oh, that was when he did uh, Hearts of the World, and we ran it at the Museum of Modern Art in the late 20s and the early 30s, and, and they laughed at the villains when they would kick me or beat me or knock me down. We call them Huns, and they thought those uh, Germans, being wicked, were very funny. And then when they started beating the war drums over here and calling them Nazis, we ran it again at the late, in later 30s, and they took it seriously. Broken Blossoms is sometimes a risky picture to show to audiences, although many of us consider it one of the finest things ever made. Why do you think that uh, some audiences take it so poorly? Well, I've never seen an audience that took that poorly. If it's run properly, if, they, if it's run on modern machines and run too quickly, it's very amusing. As any film, it would have been amusing then. Yes. But run at the proper speed with the musical score and the effects. It's a rather terrifying picture, except that some of Donald's crisp scenes they laugh at, but we wanted them to laugh at that. You know, you can't sustain a mood of terror or... Uh, heavy drama very long without a laugh for American audiences we uh, are self-conscious about crying we don't um, think you should show emotion in in America we are apt to be moved and giggle about being moved in a, in a picture if, yes. if we if, if a whole audience starts to sob they're very apt to, to burst into uh, laughter I know in playing Camille in the theater, I found this would be true, because they'd cry so in the end that I would have to speed up, because if they'd catch themselves sobbing, they would start to laugh, because yeah. they're, they're very self-conscious about um, emotion. Now, if they don't know, if, they don't, if they're not emotional noisily, they will take it. We uh, used to keep trained nurses at the back of the theater for Broken Blossoms when it was first released because women would faint and have to be carried out and we thought if that were was ever known that people women would stop coming and it would be so bad for business so Griffith wanted the trained nurse to qu quietly take care of them quietly put them in a cab and quietly get them away from the theater so it wouldn't be nosed around that this was too emotional to take also uh, in way down east the same way oh yes they would faint <laughs> 